0: Stand if you would, and we have our Scripture text this morning. We're continuing the study that we began last week. We've got two passages of Scripture, and we will begin with Galatians 5.22. By the way, this is not the only spot where either spiritual gifts or fruit of the Spirit is mentioned. This is actually a consistent theme throughout Scripture, in particular the New Testament. This, however, is the most famous couple of verses dealing with this subject. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There's no law against these things. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the afflictions or the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, in other words, if it's not our good works that saves us, if it's our if it's our faith in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that immerses us in or places us into the body of Christ, then let us also walk Uh, Again, this was written in Greek. However, John the Apostle would have thought like a Hebrew, which he was. And, of course, you know that whenever you see that word walk, that means your manner of life. Uh, A rabbi would teach his Talmudim, his students, the halakha, the proper way to live life as a follower. So that's what i was talking about. If we're born again by the Holy Spirit, let us also live our lives in obedience to the Holy Spirit... And here's an example of what not to do. Well, here's an example of, of some of the works of the flesh. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. And then I'll pick up on that as Jesus in the upper room, uh, the night before his crucifixion, he's talking with the twelve. He says a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another by this Shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now let me pause just for a moment, for I pray and we'll sit down. Fruit is something that's naturally produced if the tree is healthy and under normal circumstances. That's how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit's work in us. Healthy and under normal circumstances, we will subdue or crucify the desires of the sinful flesh, that Adamic nature we have. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and under a natural and normal relationship, the Holy Spirit will bear fruit in our lives. Just like an apple tree, a healthy apple tree produces apples. A healthy orange tree produces orange. A healthy Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit will naturally produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. That's the focus of our study. And today we will emphasize that first characteristic that's listed, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In particular, focusing on love. Lord, bless now our time of study. Bless our our church family as many are traveling to Georgia at this point in time. Bless us here. Lord, help me to have strength of voice and clarity in pronouncing words so that they be easily understood. And open our hearts to receive the biblical truth which is conveyed. Lord, opinions are opinions, but the Word of God stands forever. So help me to clearly present the Word of God to our flock. Lord, help us to grow in your grace and knowledge. We ask all this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last night of Jesus with his disciples before the crucifixion, of course, was leading up to uh, the feast of, of Passover. In fact, this was the 14th of the month. This was the preparation day for the Passover, and under normal circumstances, this would be like our July 4th. It was a time of celebration. They were remembering when God miraculously delivered them from bondage in Egypt. But midway through this meal, the disciples recognized that there was a different something hanging in the air. This was an unusual night, and it was a somber evening. In fact, Jesus tried to cheer them up. In John 14, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust God, don't you? Well, then trust me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that weren't true, I would tell you. And I'm going to leave you for a while because I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, then trust me, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. And whether I go, you know. And where I go, you know. Thomas, the doubter, led and voicing a question for the 12, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and and, and we don't know how to get there. Jesus responded to that famous verse 6, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then Jesus continued to encourage them. He said, in the meantime, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. When I go to the right hand of the Father, I am going to send another Paracletos. We talked about that last week. I'm going to send another of the same sort, another member of the Trinity, of the Godhead, who will come alongside, who is called to come alongside to aid you and help you. But he will not just be with you, he will be in you. And then Jesus continued to say, now the world hates me. As my followers, the world's going to hate you as well. So you better love one another. As a matter of fact, I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. Now, the word love confuses many in our day, and I think the reason behind that is we have associated love with romance or attraction or warm, fuzzy feelings. As a matter of fact, we have seen LGBT activists come after me saying that I am not a loving person by saying that homosexuality is a sin according to the Scripture. Uh, they say that you should never say no. In fact, can we turn the air conditioner on? I think we've had something go wrong upstairs. If we can get the AC, it is warm in here. Anybody warm in here besides me? You know, I'm always hot. No, that didn't sound right. I'm always warm. But I see people fanning themselves, so I'm suspicious this must be in the whole building. So if we can crank on that AC up there or text Dan Davis to knock it down a few degrees. We got it under control. All right, very good. Let's freeze them out. Before this service is over, I want to see every wife in the lap of her husband. All right? I want to be this building so cold that Cindy comes in here and hops in my lap right here. So anyway. But we're told that saying no is is an ungodly thing or is not a sign of love. Well, i got to tell you, folks, my mother loved me dearly. She raised me. She did a great job with me and my, my brothers because she was that kind of mom. But let me tell you, my mom often shared harsh words with me. In fact, no was a primary part of her vocabulary much of my teenage years. And it was not because she didn't love me, but because she did love me. And we know that to be true. As a matter of fact, the Bible itself says that whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth, and he correcteth every son. So when someone says that no is not a loving answer, actually sometimes no is the loving answer. But some of the confusion that we have in English is because of translation. And the reality is that there are actually four completely different words in the Greek language that are all translated as love in English. So, the Greek understands there's four totally different meanings, but in English, we have a tendency of conflating them. First of all, there is the Greek word storge, which means a natural familial love, the kind of love that you have within a family unit. Then you have eros. Obviously, we get the word erotic from eros. So, this is referencing the physical intimacy of the sexual relationship that God gave as a gift to be held in holiness between a husband and his wife. Then we have phileo. Now, this is actually better translated like because it's totally dependent upon the subject. Uh, It can be translated attraction or fondness. And as I said a moment ago, it's conditional. I love hamburgers because hamburgers taste good. That's conditional. That's not unconditional. If hamburgers stopped tasting good, then I would stop loving them. In fact, when I had my cancer, radiation killed my taste buds. Very quickly, it got to the point where I did not like to eat it's how I lost 70 pounds in six weeks. It was tough to eat because I did not like to eat. So understand this phileo is a dependent word. It's dependent upon the subject. If, if you fell in love with your husband because he had rock-hard abs, then you're going to cease to love him when he loses those rock-hard abs. You understand? So all of these three are translated love in English. Because as you can see on the screen, there are three completely different words. And then, of course, there's God's love, agape. This is not an emotion. This is not a feeling. This is an action. It's unconditional, and it's a decision that one makes. Now, when you look at these words, you take this into consideration. When I say something like, I love football, and I love my wife, both are true, but the type of love I have for them is completely different. When I say I love donuts and I love children, both are true, but the love I'm referencing is completely different. Three of these types of love, the storge, the arrows, and the flao, are natural. You don't have to be saved to experience that. When somebody's nice to you, you like to be around them. Doesn't matter whether you're saved or not, that is a natural response. However, that one love, agape, is not a natural response. That's God's love, and that's what we're going to be focusing on the rest of this morning. Now, Understand that being Jews, uh, the twelve were already familiar with this concept of loving your neighbor. In fact, it was just two days earlier, as they were all in the temple with their with the Messiah, uh, that the, the Lord Jesus was challenged by various Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, as they were trying to trip him up. We'll talk about that more in detail on the week of the Passover, why those four days were so significant. But the Sadducees came to Jesus and His disciples in the temple and questioned Jesus about the resurrection. That's when they posed the question, what if a woman was married and didn't have a child and her husband died? So she married his brother. And then before they had a child, uh, the husband died and she wound up having seven husbands. Whose wife would she be in the eternity? Jesus responded, You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And went on to elaborate as he responded to them. Then there was the challenge by the Herodians about whether they should pay tribute to Caesar or not. Jesus said, Take a coin out of your pocket. Whose image is on it? Give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's give unto God that which is God's. But then the final test was actually the most difficult. The Pharisees came and asked, of the 613 laws in Torah, which is the most important? Well, folks, let me tell you, Jews are a lot like Baptists. If you had two in one room, you'd get three different opinions. So this was certain to have a fight break out there in the courtyard of the temple. And Jesus answered with two verses, one from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the other from Leviticus 19, where Jesus said, here is the whole of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and oomph. And the second adds on to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So understand that loving your neighbor was not a New Testament concept. It was not something that Jesus came up with at that time. Actually, Jesus, being the Eternal Word, capital W, did come up with the concept, but he'd given it to the Jewish people 1,500 years in the book of Leviticus. It was part of the Mosaic Law. God had commanded the people of Israel to love their neighbors as they loved themselves. And the meaning is obvious when you consider the verses around it in the text of Scripture. Let's look at it briefly as we pass. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, he says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thine vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thine vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So one way of loving your neighbor as you love yourself was to be charitable. And that's what he was describing here. Anybody that's read the book of Ruth and recognizes Ruth working in Boaz's field with his permission, understand how charity was to work under the law rather than just sitting on your blessed assurance and getting a check from the government, a landowner would go and harvest his crop but he was instructed, don't go all the way to the ed- edges. Leave a little bit around the perimeter. And then as you're harvesting, if you leave a few grapes on the vine, go ahead. If you drop a bunch of grapes, just leave them out there. And then you would let those that needed the assistance, they would come and work your field at the end and pick up that that was left. That's spelled out in the law. That is a way of demonstrating love for your brother as you love yourself, the act of charity. Then you have... Honesty. You shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. So honesty is a way that you can love your brother as or love your neighbor as you love yourself. Verse twelve. And you shall not swear by my name falsely. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. And that's not talking about cussing. What that's talking about is the Jews got into a custom of calling on another to basically testify on their behalf as to their honesty. So if they were saying something, they might say, On the lives of my children, I swear. Or by the by the temple of God, I swear. Or I'm calling God in heaven, I swear. Well, Jesus said, you don't need to do that. If you're an honest person, let your yes be yes, yet your no, by, no be no. But this says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. So live truly. If you love your brother as you love yourself, then don't intentionally try to mislead your brother. Verse 13. Thou shalt not defraud uh, thy neighbor, neither rob him the wages of him that was hired, shall not abide with thee all night until morning. Basically, that means if you love your brother, pay your debts. Pay your employees on time and pay them fair wages. Don't cheat in business. Verse 14, thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. Well, what's that mean? That's exploiting the disadvantage. If you curse the deaf, he can't hear you while you're cursing If you put a stumbling block in front of the blind, he can't see it in order to avoid it. So don't exploit the disadvantage, those that are poor or those that are weak. Verse 15, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. You want to know why the, 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 the statues of Lady Justice, where she's holding the scales, she's always blindfolded? Because of the Bible. Justice is supposed to be blind. When evaluating anything, in fact, this is the hardest thing, Christians. We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. We all have a tendency to view things from our own perspective. Obviously, that's natural. We have a desire to to exist. We have a desire to win. And we oftentimes will look at things only through our eyes. Quite frankly, we need to be able to separate ourselves from every situation. And if you're involved in something, you have to be able to look at it objectively and not show any bias even towards yourself. In this case, justice is blind. No favoritism toward the poor. No favoritism towards the, toward the toward the rich. You must be objective and just in your judgment. Verse 16. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people, trying to destroy someone's reputation. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Well, what's that mean? It means don't gossip or maliciously lie to destroy the character of another. And then also, when you look at the B part of that verse, you're not supposed to stand idly by while someone you while your neighbor is being attacked. Now, that could be through gossip or it could be literal. If someone was breaking... In fact, when I used to live over in Arrowhead Valley, uh, we had a break-in at our, our dentist friend's house and lived three doors down the, down the street. Well, you know what? We called the police, but I was down there in a heartbeat with my cold forty-five, <laughs> And I'm not talking about the malt liquor either. I'm talking about uh, a, a real cold forty-five. Thankfully, I didn't run into anybody, but I was going to go down there and try to help my neighbor if they needed the help. Verse 17... "...thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart... Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin uh, uh, upon him. So don't harbor a grudge or resentment, but also go to your neighbor. If he's doing something that is dangerous to himself, if he is bringing some unexpected uh, damage to himself, we should try to intervene. So, for example, if you have a neighbor that's questioning whether they should let their sons or daughters identify as transgender. Well, the reality is if you love your neighbor, you should, you should love them enough to be honest with them and with grace present them what biblical truth is on that subject. In verse uh, 18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt, what's it say? Love thy neighbor as thyself. What book is this in? Leviticus chapter 19. This idea of loving your neighbor as yourself actually was a traditional, old, a well-known part of the Jewish law. So loving your neighbor means to be charitable, to be honest, to be consistent. In other words, live a life like a Christian should live. To pay your debts on time. Don't cheat in business. Don't exploit the disadvantaged, the poor and the weak. Judge righteously and objectively in everything. Don't gossip or maliciously lie to destroy the character of another. Protect the welfare of your neighbor. Don't harbor a grudge or resentment. Defend your home, but justice lies with the law. Now, if I do this, think about how simple God's design is. You can continue to turn the A.C. down again if you would. But if I'm doing this and you're doing this, self-governing, family governing, everything according to God's will, what a beautiful church body we'd have. What a beautiful neighborhood we'd have at those homeowner association meetings, homeowner association meetings. What a beautiful community we'd have here in Edmond. But notice there's nothing here about warm, fuzzy thoughts. Nothing here about gooey emotions and feelings. Quite frankly, nothing here about liking your neighbor. And folks, understand, that's what we're talking about here in Agape. I'll probably cover this later, but let me stop right now. There may be somebody you go to church with that you don't particularly care for. We're not everybody's cup of tea. You know how we develop friendships? We develop friendships by things that we have together in common. So typically, you might find a couple of guys that love to fish, hanging out together, talking about fishing over a cup of coffee. You may find somebody that's an OU fan, You know, OU fans gathering together to gloat and brag in their arrogance about how good their football team has been through the year. You might have OSU fans gathering together to cry on each other's shoulders and whine about how unfair life is. But you have a tendency of associating with people that are similar to you. So you might not be everybody's cup of tea. If you're Johnny outdoorsman and like to hunt and then skin the deer and do this, and you're not going to probably have a lot to do with somebody that grew up in Nichols Hills. That's in, in, in our church. You both have a common Savior in Jesus, and you both love each other as described up here. But it doesn't mean you necessarily have to be out hanging to, hanging around together every day after church. We want to be courteous. We want to be kind. We want to be truthful with everybody. But you might not be everybody's best friend that you go to church with. Quite frankly, that. Okay. What this is talking about is basically the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Fairly, justly, and genuinely. But Israel and Judah, who are God's chosen people and given this law in the first place, failed in keeping this command. As a matter of fact, consider the charges that were laid at their feet when God brought Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon down to invade Judah and Israel. These are the charges if you look in the books of prophecy. They were dishonest in business. In other words, they were cheating their neighbor and not loving their neighbor. They ignored the year of sabbatical release. Again, that is enslaving in a business situation. You're taking advantage of someone that you can take advantage of rather than loving them as you love yourself. Uh, Unjust weights and measures. That's so you can make it a little bit heavy or a little bit light on the scales as you're buying or selling something. Again, that's taking advantage. Advantage of your neighbor, not loving your neighbor. Removing landmarks, that's stealing private property rights. Again, not loving your neighbor. Bribing judges, that was specifically laid out in Leviticus 17. Justice is blind, we must be objective, no favoritism. Well, not in Israel, that wasn't loving your neighbor. The leaders fed off of their flocks. The pastors were taking advantage of their flocks. And fleecing them rather than caring for their flocks. They were disrespectful to their parents. They didn't care for their family. They lived for revelry and drunken parties. They murdered their children. They would take their children. In fact, we're, we're just more sophisticated in how we murder ours. They would actually take a live baby and throw it in a fire to Ashtaroth or Baal and, and, and then they would beat drums to try to drown out that temporary cry as the baby died. We, we've gone a step ahead of that. We just killed the baby while it's still in the womb. Much cleaner that way, and that way you can't hear the screaming, folks. We've killed sixty-two million of them. America is just as sinful as any country that's ever walked down the pike, and that's why we're calling for revival in America. But they were religion became a big business. Uh, they no longer were ashamed of immorality. They even celebrated LGBT Pride Month. I'm not sure it was June in Israel, but they were celebrating the debauchery as well. Things that common sense and God said was evil, they called good. Things they experienced, common sense and God called good, they called evil. They were proud and arrogant. Their court system became corrupt. Their government was corrupt. And they denied and abandoned God. So with this background, Jesus said to the twelve, You're to be known by love one for another. And the question, obviously, was how could they succeed in keeping this commandment when their forefathers had failed? Well, you know the answer already because I introduced you to the, to the answer last week. And we're going to continue to come back to the same answer. You know what the difference is? The Spirit of Holiness. Now last week we considered the squabbling among the twelve over who was most important and who would have the best job when Jesus set up the kingdom as they were walking from from the the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem uh, leading up to the the crucifixion. Then we noted the historical record of the sacrificial lives that they all lived after the resurrection and how all of them except for John gave their lives in terrible martyrs' death because of their faithfulness to the Lord. Well, what changed? What was the difference between those guys going to Jerusalem and those guys that we see after the resurrection? Well, we know what what the difference is. Here, they were indwelt with the Spirit of holiness. That was the difference. They had the Holy Spirit indwelling them and then the obedience of being filled or being led or being controlled by the Holy Spirit day by day. Now, with this, Remember, John was there in the upper room. In this painting, that would have been him right there next to Jesus. So he was well familiar with this issue and this command. As a matter of fact, the account that we read this morning in our scripture text was taken from the gospel according to John. Now, about 50 years later, John is writing further instructions. To his congregation in Ephesus, elaborating on this same topic. And in first John chapter two, verse seven, we see that John says this, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning, 1500 years old, spelled out there in Leviticus. The old commandment is the word, which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. No, wait a second, John. Is this a new commandment or is this an old commandment? You said it was an old commandment around for 1,500 years. Now you're also saying that it's a new commandment. So which is it? Well, this is both. It's an old commandment in word, yet it is new in character. It's new in the sense of how it can be carried out. I put up there at the bottom of this, the Greeks had two different words for the word new. One meant new according to time. One meant new according to quality. And that's the word that John uses here. So John says the commandment to love one another or love your neighbor as you love yourself is not new in time. In fact, it had been around for 1,500 years since Mount Sinai. But it is new in character. How? Because now they were indwelt by the Spirit of holiness. And as a result, we have a capacity to love our brothers in a new way. We can love them as Christ loved us. As we have received that agape love, then we have the ability to be a conduit and give that agape love to others. Jesus said, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I am going to send another, alas, another of the same sort. Paracletos, another one who is called to come alongside and help you. And then, of course, Jesus went on to say He will not only be with you, He will, in fact, be in you. Now, this love is not natural. In fact, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us is what produces this love. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and demonstrated by the Spirit of God that bears fruit within us. The fruit is what God produces through us, and it's done supernaturally. We grow in His knowledge, and we surrender to His will in humble obedience. So, as we said last week, we are indwelt the moment you ask Jesus to come into your heart. That's on Him. Jesus, in fact, Paul says in the book of Romans, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ within you, then you're not His. Jesus said in John 14 and John 15, if you are a follower of mine, the Holy Spirit will not only be with you, but in you, so that's something that He does. In fact, the Scripture says that, that He baptizes us into the body of Christ through the baptism or the immersion or the work of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. We are marked authentic. And we are sealed as if we, that symbolizes ownership by the Spirit of holiness. And we are indwelt by the Spirit of holiness when we give our hearts and lives to Christ. However, it is up to us to be obedient and be filled by the Holy Spirit. We also have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit and not let the Holy Spirit have control over our lives. This is what we talked about last week. This is where free will comes into place, and this is the battle of two natures. We have the flesh that desires to fulfill the works of the flesh. Then we have the spirit of holiness, which wants to bring glory and honor to God. And many times they are battling each other. And folks, we are seeing it here. It never should happen. But guess what? It does. And it always has. You go back and you look at Paul's letters to every church. You look at John's letters to churches that he was affiliated with. You look at Peter's letters to churches he was affiliated with. And this same subject was addressed with every church that was full of Spirit-filled believers. I put one up here as an example, Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the top ten churches of all time. They were a phenomenal church with a phenomenal reputation. And look at what Paul says here as he pours out his heart uh, to to this church in Ephesus. He says in chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, and he was. He was in a Roman prison at that very moment because because of his preaching the gospel. I beg you. That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. I beg you to act like children of God. Well, how so, Paul? With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then after going through many illustrations, Paul wraps up this chapter with verse 30 and says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Do you realize that we have the ability to make God sad? We can sadden God's heart by our willful, stubborn disobedience. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, here's some elaboration on how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all maliciousness. Instead, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's the church of Ephesus. You have the same thing, the church of Philippi, the same thing that the churches in Galatia. Every New Testament church, Paul or John or James or whoever or Peter, had to stop and address this issue. Let me bring some attention to one of those churches in the time remaining that's one of the most famous churches. And Paul deals specifically with the word agape in his letter to the church in Corinth. Now recognize this is only about 25 years after the resurrection. Paul the apostle was having trouble with this childish, immature, selfish church congregation in Corinth, Greece. Now, I really don't understand why so many modern churches in our era want to imitate the Corinthians. Quite frankly, of all the churches that are listed out there, Corinth is one of the most childish, immature assemblies that are listed anywhere in the Bible. Nevertheless, we seem to hold Corinth up as the church we try to emulate But in 1 Corinthians, we see a lot of the charges that God was laying against them. One of which is they were full of cliques and divisions. They took pride in who led them to the Lord. Chapter 1, they took pride in who their particular preacher was. Some were followers of Apollos. Some were followers of Peter. Some were followers of of James. Folks, can you imagine sending an email one to another that said, Team Apollos on it? our team Peter on it? Let me tell you, folks, there's only one team. should be team Jesus. Everything that any of us do anywhere at any time should be all about Jesus and not about some man that you happen to have developed a friendship with. But they took pride in following after these different preachers. And then everyone wanted to be the spotlight. You couldn't hear a good sermon because everybody's wanting to talk. Church gatherings turned into free-for-alls as everyone had something to say and no one wanted to listen. Sexual immorality was going on unchecked in the church. Their church agape feasts where they would come together in a church fellowship or a potluck dinner turned into drunken pride fests. And they were all battling over who was most important or who had the most important gifts. Oh, I can speak in tongues. Well, I can heal. Well, I can do this. Well, I'm I'm more important than you are because I've got this gift. And Paul calls them to the carpet, and he said this while correcting their pride and their desire to have the most important spiritual gifts. He said, let me tell you about the greatest gift you can possibly possess, and that is agape love. And then these next few verses in the beginning of, of chapter 13 are what we call historically now, the love chapter. In fact, quite frankly, this is part of the counseling I go through in premarital counseling with a couple that's going to get married. In fact, I read from it and talk about it in the weddings that I perform. And in, in fact, according to Ephesians chapter 5, agape is the foundational love for marriage. But remember, this passage wasn't directed specifically to couples. This was directed specifically to a church family that were selfish, self-centered and vicious towards each other And again, Jesus said they were to be known by their love one for another. So that's what Paul is addressing and attacking. And Paul said in our text that fruit of the Holy Spirit should naturally be produced in a healthy body if it's functioning normally. And Paul's trying to teach them about agape. Of all the gifts you desire, of all the showy gifts you have. Oh, I want this gift. I want the gift of discernment. I want the gift of tongues. I want the blah, 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 blah. said, if you have... if you don't have love then you're nothing but a lot of noise. And then he goes on to elaborate in a New Testament sense, slightly different, not contradicting, just emphasizing a little difference as Israel is now not their own self-governing nation as now Christians were living in the Roman Empire. And Paul teaches them about agape. He says, let me teach you about it. Agape suffers long. What that mean? That means agape is patient, slow to anger, long-tempered. Proverbs 16, oops, I had it up there already. Proverbs 16 says this, He that is slow to anger is better than a mighty man who conquers a city. Now understand, patience does not mean that justice is denied. Patience means that justice is delayed. When God pronounced judgment on the earth and said, I'm going to destroy it with a flood, he waited 120 years and let Noah preach a a sermon of repentance every day as he was constructing the ark. Why was that? God's long suffering. Peter elaborates about God's long suffering. People that say, well, you know, people have been looking for the Lord's return for 2,000 years. Well, where is he? Well, Peter says, God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men consider slackness. But God is long-suffering. Why, Peter? Because God is not willing that any should come into judgment. He would much prefer that all come to repentance. That's why God is patient. So justice is not eliminated. It's just delayed. We are to be patient with how we deal with one another. Next one, patience is kind. Well, the easiest way to understand kind is by looking at the antonyms. Rude, inconsiderate, thoughtless, hateful, mean. You know, even if you have to correct somebody or instruct somebody, you can do it humbly and with kindness. You don't have to be obnoxious. Love is not jealous of others. Love is not boastful or proud. Understand that pride and arrogance and conceit were characteristics that tripped up the devil. But humility and service and sacrifice are characteristics that describe our Savior. And I also highlighted up there what's very important. Envy and pride do not demonstrate a love for others. They demonstrate a love for yourself and they lead to a resentment of others. Agape does not... Uh, uh, does not uh, behave itself unseemly. Or in other words, does not misbehave or act rudely or act ugly. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is others serving. And as I've mentioned a couple of churches already, we've already glanced at a church in Ephesus being rebuked for their lack of love. We're right now dealing with the church in Corinth being rebuked. Consider what Paul said to the great church in Philippi. By the way, when you read Philippians Paul doesn't have much negative to say about it. But he did pause and say this. He said, you guys are breaking my heart. Fulfill my joy that you be of one accord, having the same love of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others more important than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the mind of Christ... Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on, says that agape is not easily provoked. In other words, doesn't easily fly into rage when injured. Now, folks, Solomon says there is a time for all things. And as I read through the Gospels, I see times when the Bible says that Jesus was angry with those around him. And Jesus, at many times, was angry with the actions of the Pharisees. So sometimes a righteous anger may be, in the end, a right response. But agape controls a quick trigger. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I was counseling a couple that was having some marital difficulties. The husband was a bully and was at least verbally abusive to his wife. I do not, there was no evidence of anything beyond that. If there was, we would have handled that. But he was verbally abusive to his wife, and it was all because he couldn't control his temper. So I responded to him. I said, well, how's the job search going? And he looked at me puzzled. And I said, what do you mean job search? I said, well, you can't control your temper. I'm assuming you've gone off on your boss a number of times and probably been fired a few times and had to find other jobs. So how's your job search working out? she well, says, I've never lost my temper at work. Now get that. I can't control my temper at home, but I can control it at work. So you can control your temper. You choose not to control your temper when you're at home with your wife because there you can be a bully and think you can get away with it. Folks, that is not a demonstration of Agape. There may be righteous indignation at some point, but we should not have a quick trigger. Agape, thinketh no evil. That, the Jewish commentary says, doesn't keep record of wrongs to bring up at a later date. So, in particular, ladies, you can't bring up something that your husband did 20 years ago in a fight that you have tomorrow. Once you say you're forgiven, then it's forgiven, and you can't bring it up again after that. It doesn't keep track of wrongdoings. You can keep track and count the blessing. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now again, remember, this is a church congregation that Paul was addressing. And believe it or not, some of them were so selfish and self-centered that they were rejoicing when something bad happened to one of their fellow church members. It shouldn't be that way. Love never breaks down, never loses faith, never loses hope, never wears out. The most important thing Paul says about this characteristic is love never fails. Now, the first listed attribute of the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in the life of a believer is agape. We have just spent this morning focusing on that attribute called Agape. Now, here's where we're going to pause. We're going to come to a close and pray and have our invitation. Here's what I want you to keep asking yourself. Just like we covered a couple of weeks ago when we went over Matthew 7. Your job is not to say, well, I sure hope brother so-and-so is listening to this. Boy, pastor's just dancing all over him today. I hope they're listening. No, you are to analyze yourself. Fruit is something that's naturally produced in a normal and healthy tree. The fruit of the Spirit should naturally be produced in us if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit. So having just covered this one topic, agape love, that supernatural, miraculous, unconditional love, which by the way, unless you have received the love of Christ... You don't really have the wherewithal to be able to give the love of Christ to others. But as you're evaluating yourself, does this attribute show in your life? And understand that's why we talk about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. Patience is not natural, revenge is. Forgiveness is not easy. Getting even is. It's not easy to love the unlovable or to forgive someone who has hurt you. That's not natural. As a matter of fact, it's supernatural. But that obedience is a sign of a person who is under the control of the Holy Spirit and surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord of their lives. So again, how do you look as we go through this list The next several weeks, we're going to be covering each of these attributes. And I want you, the whole purpose of this is you get alone with you and God and say, if Christianity was a crime, am I giving any evidence of this attribute that might cause me to be arrested?